0: Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 11. Uh, It is on page uh, 1016 of your pew Bible. It should be in the rack there in front of you. So 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly The word of the Lord.
1: When I was in a <clears throat> seminary, a professor led us through a thought experiment uh, after he had been on an evangelistic walk with some friends. And he encountered the home of a young man and a young lady uh, who respectfully invited them in to talk about the gospel and the claims of Christianity. Well, my professor said that the couple listened very intently and you could tell they were processing what it all meant. Finally, at the end of it, he asked the couple if they had any questions about the presentation. I have one, the young lady said. If I become a Christian, does that mean that I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend? So he spent the rest of the class trying to figure out exactly what the professor should have said in response to that question. Because if you think about it, it's kind kind of a trick question, isn't it? On the one hand, if you say yes, you have to stop sleeping with your boyfriend to be a Christian. It, it sounds suspiciously like you're putting conditions on becoming a Christian, you know, salvation by the good work of stopping whatever sexual sin you're in. But if you also say, well, no, you can continue to do whatever you want. That doesn't sound right either because clearly Jesus makes claims over my sexuality. It was a really fascinating discussion. (laughs) But by the end of the class, we came to the conclusion that there really wasn't any way to answer the question in the terms in which it was stated because the phrasing showed that that they had missed something fairly crucial in the presentation. Why? Well, because becoming a Christian is not just believing in God, it's believing God. And when God says that sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage And he says that that's an activity that actually is detrimental. It leads to the dishealth of a a relationship. We either believe him when he says that or we do not. In the end, we all decided that we would respond to the woman by saying, do you mind if we actually went back and went over a couple things? Because I think you might have missed something. It would just be weird uh, to say to someone, you know, I think there's a poison in your life that only Jesus can save you from. And have them to respond to you, well, I can buy into that. But um, can I keep drinking the poison? You would think maybe they misheard your explanation about the poison, right? Look, my point is this morning is that Christianity never places a burden on us to believe in God without first providing for us what God has done on our behalf. God calls us to love him above all. But even as it calls us to love him, it reminds us, like in places like 1 John four nineteen, that we love because he first loved us. Or even in Jesus' exchange with uh, Peter in John 13, Jesus gets down to wash Peter's feet, and Peter's like, nope, not gonna have anything. you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, look, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. In other words, Christianity teaches that no ethical demands are made on God's creatures that are not first embodied and accounted for by God himself. What he asks, he supplies and in the face of what he supplied, the question comes simply down to, the, down to this. Do I believe him that he's loved me this way? Do I believe he has served me this way? We're finishing up this week our discussion through the four ways in which Christ Press determines and defines spiritual formation. We've talked about attending and connecting and training. And finally today we come to serving. A Christian says that our love for God grows and is stretched because he first loved us, but we soon discover that it's not just that he has said that he loved us, but he embodies that love through service. And for that reason, God himself is making room for us to grow in his likeness. For that reason, he calls us to go and do the same thing to each other. And so in very typically sort of understated fashion, Peter unpacks for us the dynamics of serving in God's kingdom how it's supposed to happen, and how we're to love each other. comes to us in three particular ways, right? He first goes into when we are to serve. Secondly, he talks about who we are to serve. And then finally, how do we serve? Let's take that first one about when we serve. The reason I phrase it that way is because of the way that he opens up the passage. He he says this familiar refrain, the end of all things is at hand. And it reminded me of some of those cartoons that you see where you've got a uh, or you've got a hobo sort of standing on the street with a, with a sandwich board on that says, the end is coming, right? Is that what Peter's saying? You know, oftentimes when modern people read uh, uh, Bible references like that, they assume that there was something, a mistake in the Bible because these writers were clearly wrong about their prediction. The end was not near unless you consider 2000 plus years near, But you've got to understand, we believe that Peter was not speaking chronologically about the end, but rather he was speaking theologically about the end. What Peter means is, is the final phase of God's plan of redemption has been inaugurated by the arrival of King Jesus, now dead and raised again from the dead. Even the predicted coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 1 is signaled as the last days in the biblical language. So the end that Peter's talking about is the end of an era. And it's been the last days ever since Jesus rose from the dead. Now look, I certainly don't want to do a deep dive this morning into the Bible's definition of the end times and how it works out. Suffice to say, the the Bible gives hints that Jesus could come back tomorrow The Bible also gives some sense in which it could be thousands of years from now before Jesus returns. But the point of what these authors are trying to say is that this great redemptive work that God is working out has reached finality in what Jesus has done. That's the center of it. Now, what I want you to notice, though, is what Peter draws from this. Because he believes that we are living in what he calls times of fulfillment, which means this, there is an urgency to what we have to do there is an urgency to our work. That's why he says in verse seven, that we are to be self controlled and sober minded. In other words, we need to love and serve each other because these are urgent times. Suddenly occurred to me while I was reading this, that the way in which you perceive your times has so much to do with how you take your work, does it not? There's a sense in which if you believe that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and there's nothing that I can do to stop that. That might make you stop before you actually go and serve that world. If it's inevitable destruction, it's going to happen anyway. Likewise, if you're used to thinking of your particular place where God's left you in history in a certain way, it's really hard to change gears when that thing shifts, isn't it? I had an illustration that I heard someone that was talking about a church a number of years ago who went through a very difficult time. Apparently, two things had happened to the church. The first one had to do with some missionaries that they had in the Middle East who had been for years trying to minister to Muslim uh, people and finally reported the conversion of an entire household. Turns out that the head of that household had lost a brother to the Syrian war And because the missionaries were so so kind to the wives of this man's family, he went next door and asked them if they might be willing, because they had some space to do so, to host the wedding between the brother and his lost brother's widow. Well, the missionaries saw it as such a wide open opportunity that they got quite excited about it and not only invited them to come along and have the wedding there, but also to help to pay for the wedding. Well, that act of kindness opened up the door of ministry to actually see those people come to conversion in Christ afterwards. An amazing story. But here's the thing. That exact same year, something else happened. And it happened around the new pastor. The pastor had actually been there only a year or so. But he was sitting there at his home and was approached by some neighbor friends of his who happened to be a lesbian couple. The couple were about to get married because the laws had recently changed in their state. But they had a child who was confined to a wheelchair because she suffered from cerebral palsy. Well, she had befriended the pastor's child who suffered from the same affliction. The pastor carefully agreed, understanding exactly what their relationship was to their idea about the marriage. But they agreed that it would be good for the daughters to be able to have each other at the wedding. What the pastor didn't realize, though, is that a photographer was going to show up at that wedding, because it happened to be one of the first gay marriages in their area, snapped a picture of the couple as they walked down the aisle, only to capture the pastor on the aisle smiling as they walked past, which landed on the front page of the newspaper that very Sunday morning. Well, By the end of the evening, some of the, some of the elders were ready to leave the church. Many of the members in the days ahead, even after finding out the purpose behind it, had left the church over it. It literally split the church in half. Now, here's my question. How do you explain the diversity of the responses to those two actions? Both of those instances, both marriages, it is what we believe Orthodox Christian belief to be, were contrary to God's design for marriage. The one being polygamous. Though it was part of Islamic law, they found themselves able to breach that in order to reach people for that purpose. But the other one was of same-sex marriage, which we would also look as being contrary to God's law. And yet the congregation was ecstatic about the first, but deeply offended by the second. Why the difference? Well, I was talking to a friend who actually said that the reason was, is because they hadn't discerned the times. This is the key. In the first instance, the congregation was living with what we might call a, a missionary mindset. In a missionary mindset, you realize that when I'm in hostile territory, it's not going to look tidy and neat all the time. And I'm looking for any opportunity I can to do triage rather than precision surgery when I'm, mission, when I'm serving there. But once you're back on American soil, it's as if our mentality changes from a missionary mindset to what my friend refers to as, a, as an establishment mindset. Establishment mindset says, well, marriage is sacred. And America is a Christian nation, doggone it, and there ought to be no toleration of compromise for people that are a part of that community. See how it shifts. We take on such a different posture when we perceive that we as Christians used to have cultural influence. We thought America was a Christian nation, but now we've lost it and we want it back. That's establishment thinking. Now, look, if you hear me saying (laughs) that somehow we should not be concerned about gay marriage in our community, you are wrong. I'm simply suggesting that when Peter looks and says, the end of all things is near, he is putting us all in a missionary mindset. And that we ought to expect a measure of diversity when God's people go to reach out to the various communities that we believe need the gospel. Because each of us possesses a desire to know where we are called to serve. When am, I speak, when, when am I called? I'm called during a time of urgency. And we ought to be okay with the diversity that people, put, that people express as they reach the outcasts and the broken and the disenfranchised. That's my first point where do we serve or when do we serve? Secondly, we ask the question, who is to serve? Well, Peter lays it out very clearly in verse 10. It's the gifted. Look what he says. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter then goes on to unpack what appears elsewhere in the apostle Paul as a discussion on the spiritual gifts. You're aware of this? Every Christian insists that God is uniquely gifted each believing person with an ability to serve in various ways. You know, though when I was growing up, and I feel like whenever I was presented with this idea of spiritual gifts, I remember sort of leafing through the list, excuse me, in search of what I consider to be the, um, the path of least resistance. <laughs> what gift could I choose that would least obligate me so that when someone came along and asked me to volunteer for something else, I could conveniently look at them and say, well, you know, actually, that's not my gift. felt a little bit like excuse making, right? But Peter is simply trying to say, look, there is diversity in the body, Every Christian receives spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is just this ability that comes to you quite freely that allows you to sort of minister to and build up the Christian community. The biggest list that you get in the New Testament actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And Paul gives what for a lot of people is kind of a dizzying array of various gifts that can be understood. I think it's best to sort of categorize them under three large headings. The first kinds of gifts he gives to us are what we might call prophetic gifts. These are gifts that involve understanding and then verbalizing truth. It's not future prediction, by the way. It's about representing God's will to others. Prophets usually have a boldness and a clarity about how to associate their proclamation to people with. And so the gifts are like this, things like evangelism, being able to help others to believe, teaching, the ability to help others grasp these difficult concepts and learn. There's speaking, which is usually public speaking, discerning spirits, the ability to tell the the authentic from the false, and even prophecy, which is a dynamic truth telling. Those are what we might call prophetic gifts. Secondly, though, Paul gives what we might refer to as priestly gifts. These are based on understanding and then supplying basic needs for people. In that way, they represent the people to God, which is kind of the opposite of the prophets. These are gifts like what the apostle says are encouragement, motivation, counseling. There's one called helping, which is giving people assistance without trying to take it over. There's one called healing, which is being able to facilitate both uh, physical and emotional healing. There's one Paul calls pastoring, which is knowing and providing what a person needs in order to grow. There's one called serving, which is meeting people's practical needs. And finally, he describes something called mercy, which is this deep empathy you have when you watch other people suffer. But that's what we call priestly gifts That's different from prophetic gifts. Finally, and thirdly, there's what we might call kingly gifts. These are gifts that are based on direction and, and group leading. They're related to things like wisdom and practicality and how we're moving forward. They include gifts like the gift of leadership, helping people unite around a vision. The gift of administration, people who can organize tasks and really get things done. There's the gift of wisdom, which is creative problem solving. And then the gift of faith, which is the ability to clearly envision a goal that you're moving forward in. Now, why am I going through that big list? Well, because the Bible assumes that you and I are listening for those gifts and kind of trying on those gifts like, like we would a new suit to see which one fits. How has God gifted me? Where would he have me serve. Now look a couple quick thoughts before we move on to the last point that'll help us as you begin to think about this. The first one's this. Very rarely do gifts come as discrete things, disconnected from others. Most of the time gifts come in a cluster, as it were. There's multiple things that we're good at doing. I think you see this oftentimes in in church situations. I think it's true of Kurt and me. Um, there's sometimes there's pastors who both enjoy preaching, but they also enjoy the activity of administration and sort of getting things organized. On the other hand, you might have another pastor who enjoys teaching and preaching, but he really has a deep, powerful empathy and mercy. What's fascinating is, is churches oftentimes take on the personality of whatever the gifts are that that particular pastor has, which is all fine and good until we start to condescend on other people's way of doing it. Peter's giving us this so that we will be gracious to one another and know that there are ranges of giftedness that God does with everybody uniquely. Secondly, and this is important to say, it's very easy to get confused between what the Bible calls gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are something that every Christian is supposed to have every one of. Gifts are varied in the life of believing people, but what oftentimes happens is we mistake someone's gift as if it was a spiritual fruit. Does that make sense? We see that someone's good at something, and we, we sort of project on them spiritual vitality because they're so gifted. We can't do that. It very well may be that someone's extraordinarily gifted, but still not actually following what Jesus is really about. Judas comes to mind, one of the 12. Look, my question is simply this. Have you ever worked through this? Have you ever spent some time figuring out where you are gifted to serve? Because once you do, it'll relieve you of a lot of guilt whenever we start passing around interest forms for how we can serve. Once we know where we're gifted to serve, God can use us in a place of joy in service. Okay, so that's the, the where do we serve and that's the who is to serve. Thirdly and finally though, I want you to look and consider how do we serve? Peter gives us, I think, the manner of our serving right there in verse nine when he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. All right, look, hospitality is a big Bible word that you need to be familiar with. The uh, the ancient prophet Homer said in the end, there really are only two kinds of people. (laughs) There are savages and there are the people who show hospitality. Now, why did he say that? Because the ancient world established that there were people, if they weren't a part of my tribe, they were strange. And because they were strange, they were suspect. Maybe so suspect that they needed to be cast out, maybe even killed. And so hospitality was was this word that was translated to literally mean to make room for. That's a literal translation of the word. In other words, God is saying, my people, as opposed to the way the ancient world is doing it, Are actually going to make space for people. They're going to overcome that natural suspiciousness to welcome people in. Not only will you minister to them, but you'll actually even overcome your own prejudices as you do. Look, the central claim of the Christian gospel is that God has made room for us. And once you get that in your head, it invariably changes our disposition to each other, especially to the people that you might refer to today as strangers. And one of the best identifiers as a Christian is that we are strangers who welcome strangers. Throughout the Bible, you get this desire from God to help his people associate themselves as if they're strangers. Explicitly, it said in Leviticus 25, 32, uh, 23, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Did you catch that? God is saying when I move among a people who live contrary to my design, I'm a stranger there. But since I've called you, you're a stranger too. We bear the exact same mantle of being a stranger. But once we do, it causes us to look at the people that are alienated from our community in a very different way, doesn't it? A couple different dynamics when it comes to practical aspects of showing hospitality. Three simple things. Number one is this. Hospitality belongs to all. If there's anything that the Good Samaritan sort of teaches us is that we've got to be very careful before I exclude a certain people group or a people uh, section of a subgroup uh, from from my interaction. I've got to be real careful when I do that. And I'm not just talking about racial things. I'm talking about socioeconomic things. I'm talking about uh, uh, um, um, neighborhood things. How about this? How about political things? Have I cut people out of my fellowship for that reason? Secondly, hospitality always extends even beyond our living spaces. You know, we're not just talking about bringing people into our home. Introverts hate discussions about hospitality. They're like, are they coming over when? I've got to clean before they get here. But there's lots of other ways to sort of make space for people. What we're talking about at first is just simply overcoming the the, the natural tendency that we have to look at someone who's different than I am with a a look like this. Well, I I don't know whatever I should say. That's what God's trying to overcome. Thirdly and finally, hospitality, hospitality is doable. It's something that's doable. It's very easy once you sort of start down a road and we realize that like the way I show hospitality is by providing comfort, by providing safety for people, making sure they're in safe places. Maybe it means providing clothing. A favorite Southern sort of way of doing it is by bringing food. That's, that's it's hugely hospitable. Coming into a situation and bringing stability or peace, bring the calm one in the conversation. Sometimes it's going to ugly places and beautifying them. Other times, yes, it's stroking a check and writing a check to finance some of those things. Sometimes it's just simply giving someone attention. What a wonderful gift to give to people, attention without any distraction. Finally, it's hospitable just to show to build friendships. So you see, that doesn't just occur in your home. <laughs> that occurs here. We hope that it occurs every Sunday out in the lobby of this church. It should occur at work, in all the places God's called us to extend. Look, you're going to need to remember this because oftentimes once you start down a road of trying to be hospitable, you begin to realize that other people are a bottomless pit of need. Are they not? (laughs) And you get intimidated by the task and you want to walk away from it. But look, there's nothing that doesn't say that appropriate boundaries in life are not acceptable and that our lives truthfully are, are, are reflected in our particular gifts. And we need other people to balance out our witness but the truth of the matter is our hospitality is the thing that ends up being transformational. My guess is that's the way many of you, the vast majority of people in this church, landed on this church in the first place. It's because someone made room for you in their lives. That's what draws people together and keeps them together by being enfolded. Scott Sauls is the pastor of a Christ Press up in Nashville. And we can call them one of our daughter churches since they're called Christ Press too. I'm kidding. That's a huge church in Nashville. That's funnier than you know, once you realize what that church is like. But he wrote a wonderful book called uh, Befriended, where he talks about a story of a woman named Janet, not her real name. But she was a first time visitor and she went to the nursery to drop off her two boys and then go to the service. Well, after the service, she came to collect the children and uh, the nursery coordinator uh, sort of took her aside and uh, had a little bit of a talk with her. Because it turns out that there had been some issues during nursery. Uh, Some of the uh, two boys had really acted up. They picked fights with the other children. There had been a couple of toys in the church nursery that had been broken as well. Well, in front of the whole room, Janet decided to scold her boys quite loudly, uh, not the least of which involved a word, which was one of the really, really bad ones that she screamed at the top of her lungs in a whole room full of children and adults while they were picking up their children. Well, it came out and she immediately realized what she had just done, swearing, you know, uncontrollably inside a church of all places. And so she kind of grabbed her boys by the elbows and skulked out, deeply ashamed and feeling like a failure. (laughs) Scott Sauls, remember, thinking to himself, well, I don't think we'll be seeing much of Janet anymore in our church service. But the very next morning, Monday morning, he got a call from the nursery worker who asked if Janet had left her contact information uh, with the church. And it turns out she had. So the nursery worker sat down and wrote Janet a note. And Scott kept it because it went like this. said, Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up in the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with such an honest vocabulary in church. I'm really drawn to honest people, and you're clearly an honest person. I hope we can be friends. Love, the nursery worker. (laughs) Well, it turns out that they did become friends and Janet actually came back the next week. And then the week after that, and then the week after that, two years later, guess who was the new nursery coordinator? Was Janet. Now, what's the story? The interesting part of that story is that Scott left out to the very end of the story is that when Janet first visited the church, she was going through heroin addiction recovery, So the question is, what she went through in that moment, those people understood how to actually make space to invite her in. Hey, in what ways are we as a church, and by that I mean you as an individual, making space for one another? Well, one of the things that we try to do at the church is we want to make sure that there are opportunities for you, our membership, to find ways in which you can express that that open door. And we want to do that in ways which are actually on the back of your bulletin right now. You'll find a little QR code on the back of your bulletin that is an invitation to sort of look through categories of places where we can serve together as God's people. It's a little survey that kind of helps you check off some boxes of places where we have need. Um, And my invitation to you this morning is to simply look through that. We're actually going to talk about it in the weeks ahead as you begin to sort of pour over this question of what would it look like for me to give back to make these kinds of spaces for God's people. Because if he did, maybe there might be transformation that would keep going. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make that transformation start with us. Even as we approach your table this morning, Lord, we pray so much that it would come and show us your great service to us, that we might be empowered, even by the taking of this, this bread and this wine, that we would be empowered to actually move out into this community and love people for your sake. Would you do that?